Yep. Okay. Thank you. being recorded. Yeah. Transcripts next week. Wouldn't that be interesting to hear all the conversations? Transcript. Great. Fortunately, we're all so spiritual. We'd be able to find out all the scores. Okay. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the Sabbath day, for the opportunity to worship in great freedom. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, which is evident on every hand and is new every morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks for coming. Um, I'd be a rich man if I got a nickel for every time someone told me that when they were history classes was just a matter of memorizing dates uh, and the names of irrelevant people. Uh, so I thought, well, if everybody's used to that, why not give them some? Uh, these, <laughs> these dates actually are just, uh, just a fiction in your mind. The, the, uh, the, con the chronological context of the Westminster Confession of Faith creation uh, of our church and its importance historically uh, is incalculable. Uh, in fact, the, the influence of the Westminster Confession on other Reformed confessions is, is also huge. It's not to say it's the only one or that there aren't others that are just as good and uh, perhaps even a little better in some spots. Uh, I'm not competent to uh, evaluate that, but I do know that after many years of uh, use of the confession and the catechisms, uh, it is of vital importance uh, to us uh, to have a standard upon which to stand. Now, of course, we always uh, we always use the caveat that we believe what the Bible teaches. Um, somebody asks you, what do you believe? You know, oh, I believe the Bible. And then they say, well, what do you believe the Bible teaches? And they say, well, I believe the Bible teaches what is summarized in the Westminster Confession. That's credo. That's your creed. And everybody has one. Every professing Christian has a creed, whether it's written down, uh, invented by them, or historic, um, everyone has one. And the Westminster Confession uh, on a very specific uh, doctrinal issues is, uh, is ours. We believe it is what the scripture teaches. The Westminster Confession is not the scripture, but it is what we believe the scripture teaches. And there are biblical proofs for every word <laughs> in the confession. Um, it took years for that to be hammered out by the greatest reformed thinkers of the period. And I want to talk a little bit about them uh, and about that if, <laughs> if we can today. Uh, the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Assembly, was a group of what historians call uh, Puritans. And while it it is, Puritanism and Puritans are not necessarily well defined by some historians. I think that we can come to a consensus on who they were. And I want to say a few things about them. Um, perhaps you've never had a class on 
the Puritans, who they were. And if you have, in the government school, uh, it has not been particularly helpful uh, to understanding who they were, what they accomplished, uh, since 20,000 of them came to America, and those are the only ones that you will ever possibly study in school, um, would be the ones that came to America and settled in New England. And they don't have the sterling reputation <laughs> that uh, that they probably ought to have, or that they. I went to a government school, and I associate the Puritans with the Pilgrims. I guess I'm. That's good. That's good. That's a, a very good starting place. Um, and the I next thing you hear about the same. They burn witches. Yeah, yeah. they burn witches. They, they, they ran around looking for old women to burn at the stake. You know, I mean, it's just. It's just the way, uh, that's, that's the Puritan, and, uh, and they all wore a uh, black suit and um, were absolutely oppressive to women, children, Indians, and themselves. So, there, there just is not a single possible thing about them that would be helpful um, for us today, us enlightened, brilliant, perfect people today. Um, well, anyway, the, uh, the Puritans that came to New England, as I said, about 20,000 of them over a 10-year period, the 16, uh, 1630s, 1630s, 20,000 Puritans up and moved to New England. Uh, among them, almost all of my ancestors, maybe all of them, maybe 100% of my ancestors were among them uh, and were part of that. And I... I can't speak for Wally, but I have a sneaking suspicion that some of his folk were among that group too, um, and probably some of yours. In any case, um, they represent only about 5% of the Puritans of England uh, of that period. And they're actually the ones we're going to talk about, rather than the New Englanders, at this point anyway. Um, because the, the so-called Puritans, the Puritan movement, was part of the Reformation in England. Uh, and in terms of who the Puritans were, they were somewhat, uh, well, I would say somewhat reactionary. They actually, strictly speaking, weren't reactionary. I would argue that the Anglicans were the ones who were reactionary um, to the Reformation. So I'm going to say a few things about that. Also, um, for those of you who have an interest in reading and studying further, uh, there is a there's a whole body of literature, um, theological, ecclesiological, historical, on the Puritans, and that they disappeared from history for a couple hundred years uh, in American history texts. And English as well, um, other than other than Oliver Cromwell, uh, who comes in, who is a historical figure that comes into the picture of Puritans and in some ways becomes the embodiment of who they were. Um, other than him, the Puritans kind of disappear from history uh, in the history books until uh, fairly well after the middle of the 20th century. And in the 1950s, the Puritans were, except for, you know, a few Reformed people who kept touch with who the Puritans were and were still reading them uh, and trying to find their works in old, musty bookshops and such, except for the few who were, st who were still doing that, you know, for the last several hundred years. Uh, in the middle of the 20th century, in the 1950s, a publishing house in Britain, primarily in Edinburgh, Scotland, began reprinting the Puritans uh, and rediscovering their influence and their importance uh, in not just in world history, but especially in the in the church and the Reformed heritage that that many churches had separated themselves from in the 20th century, and that was a, a small publishing house called Banner of Truth. And they still exist, and they still reprint the Puritans. Uh, but I would I would say that uh, a fellow by the name of Ian Murray and his colleagues 
uh, are responsible for the rediscovery and um, renewed importance of the Puritans for us, uh, especially in America in the 20th and 21st century. Now since then, since the 1950s, uh, they have been reprinting the Puritans. Uh, right up until today, they're still doing it. But they've been joined by Reformation Heritage Books, which is a also a uh, reprinter of Puritans in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, led by um, Joel Beakey, who uh, comes out of the Dutch Reformed tradition, um, but has number one reprinter of Puritans uh, because what they wrote and what they published in their sermons is so profound and so important and so useful to pastors I suspect our pastor could confirm that that, that some of the Puritans have been helpful right? Absolutely. Uh, and, um, understanding the scriptures and preaching and the importance of it and the content uh, and, and just everything associated with the Reformed Church. And so, um, yes? Oh, there have been several small, even smaller presses. Soli Deo Gloria, which um, began reprinting the Puritans about uh, maybe 20 years ago, something like that. Uh, and Lloyd Sprinkle here in Harrisonburg uh, became a great reprinter of Puritan literature as well, not on the scale that these others have done. Um, he kind of, um, he, he, his niche turned out to be Southern Presbyterianism and as well as uh, Reformed Baptists. And so he began reprinting them, and they're all heirs of the Puritans. And then he's also, also reprinted the Puritans, and that was through the latter half of the, of the 20th century also. So there have been a number of, um, and, there, and um, what's the other one uh, down in Alabama? Uh, something Ground. What's, what's the name of them? I can't think. There are a couple other um, publishers. Solid Ground, is that what it's called? Anyway. Hmm? Solid Ground, yeah, that's right. Uh, from Alabama. Um, this is entitled Meet the Puritans with a Guide to Modern Reprints um, by Reformation Heritage Books. And uh, as you can see, you could just read this in an hour or so uh, <laughs> if you had, you know, 900 pages uh, of reading that you needed to do. Um, this is called Meet the Puritans, and there are other, several other books of this magnitude that Reformation Heritage has published on the Puritans. Uh, there are some sh much shorter uh, paperback books published by Banner of Truth that introduces you to the individual pastors and biographical sketches. And there's also a, a Reformation Heritage book of the same, about this size, that has biographical details of the lives of these great, great preachers. And I ran across the other day uh, another fine book and it turns out it was the bestseller for Reformation Heritage in 2022, uh, and it's entitled Church History. And it's a beautiful uh, book by Simonetta Carr, and she has done a whole series of books, bi biographical books. Um, they're not long, but they're for children, and they're beautifully illustrated. She's brilliant, um, and theologically reformed as can be. And she has uh, produced this uh, history of the church. So if you want a church history that, that goes through the whole history of the Christian church from a Reformed perspective for ages 9 to 12, roughly, or 12 and above. Hmm? Uh, it's entitled is Church History, and the author is Simonetta Carr, and it's Reformation Heritage Books. But for ages 9 and up... Um, this is really, this really great. She's done uh, books on um, John Owen and John Calvin. Specialized in biography, you know. Um, C A R R. Uh, she's Italian, actually. Uh, Simon N E T T A. Right, and so anyway, this was their bestseller because there just isn't anything for that age group on church history, uh, and now there is. 
uh, and of course, as I said, it's beautifully illustrated, and the writing is great and reformed perspective, and it covers all aspects really of church history. So it, the heretics are in here too, and she calls a heretic a heretic. Uh, you know, when she outlines there the theological um, beliefs of particular people of church history, they're not. Um, well, most of them probably are not reformed in our sense of the term, and um, so it's a. There's also that biblical uh, analysis of of people, and some of whom have become you know the great icons of American church history uh, that are actually uh, heretical, uh, and and so it, it deals with controversies as well as uh, just a straightforward history. Uh, and I'm thinking of putting together maybe a little bibliography on uh, books that would that would be helpful to us. And there are some at different age levels and that sort of thing. And um, that might be helpful to you if you have an interest uh, in church history and reformed history in particular. Um, and so I gave you a handout on the important dates related to the Westminster Assembly. There's a lot going on during these years between 1643 and, and 1652. Uh, a lot going on in England, in the British Isles, during that period, the period of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, and ironically, you know, the, the Assembly was called together by Parliament for the sake of reforming the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Um, and I'm going to say a few things about how they did that. Uh, this didn't all of a sudden happen. It began in 1643, but it didn't really begin in 1643. To understand the Westminster Assembly, you have to go right. You have to go back to the Reformation in the 16th century, and and see what took place as far as the Reformed Church in England. Uh, up until this particular period, when this assembly could be could be called, um, there was a desire to do this long before 1643, but the kings of England would not allow it, and it wasn't until Parliament defied the crown that this assembly could be called. Now, King James, as we know called together Bible scholars to produce the authorized version of the Bible, often called the King James Version, um, uh, called together by a, a depraved um, <laughs> and uh, clever monarch, King James I. But uh, as far as sitting down and defining once and for all what the church, the Reformed Church, believes um, that wasn't possible because the king opposed such a thing uh, until 1643, in which he still opposed it. <laughs> but Parliament called it together anyway because the king had gone to war with his own country. Um, and so that, that became the opportunity for the church to uh, call together the Westminster Assembly. A few words about the Puritans and the Puritan preachers. Um, a famous, great, one of the greatest uh, reformed preachers of the uh, mid-17th century, John Bunyan, wrote Pilgrim's Progress and other things, uh, said this, I've often thought that the best Christians are found in the worst of times. And I've been thinking about that all week, and that is, historically speaking, I think a remarkable insight into how God has worked in the history of the church. And certainly, uh, for the Reformed Church, the English-speaking Reformed Church, um, as well as, as well as French and German too, but especially the English and French Reformed churches. Uh, the Reformation and the post-Reformation period really was the worst of times. And I think we see, among the Puritans anyway, uh, in the English-speaking church, uh, we find the best of men 
coming forward during that period. Uh, the men who are going to be sort of under the historical radar and are doing all of the true preaching in the church. Uh, and I think in terms of our own country right now, uh, these are not the best of times for the Reformed Church or for any church, for the Christian church in America. Uh, it's among the worst, probably, uh, the worst time ever, historically speaking, for the church in America. And, but it's also the best of times among those really good Reformed preachers who are being faithful in their pulpits uh, Sunday after Sunday. Um, laying the groundwork for the future and the future might be a, a future of just like it did for the Westminster Assembly and the period following that is the kind of persecution that came down on the church during that period yeah I was going to say we still have it easy We're not oh yes we do uh, we still have it easy comparatively and when we look at this period of the 17th century um there's a great deal of faithfulness uh, in the pulpits, especially the Puritan pulpits of England and the Presbyterian pulpits in Scotland, that whatever the governments were doing and whatever craziness that was taking place in their culture and stuff, the men who were being faithful were training the next generation who were going to have to make a stand um, during a time of persecution. And that's kind of been a pattern in church history in a way. The, uh, the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church. And um, we find that during this, this period we're looking at. Uh, it is interesting that these faithful preachers in England and Scotland, uh, looking at England right now, they all, they all went to Cambridge. These men were educated men. And they attended the same colleges in Cambridge and they were friends and they were trained by men who were really powerful preachers themselves and were products of the Reformation and knew that they were training the the big generation of faithful Puritan preachers uh, and these guys were were buddies in college and those relationships that developed there were were maintained through their entire lives and as they went out into the churches of England and, and, and got entrenched in their pastorates, they kept in touch with each other. And his, historians looking back have found all these connections. It's, it's like, a, uh, as one historian has called it, a conspiracy of friends. Um, they were men who were trained by godly... Well, it was like John Calvin was training John Knox who trained hundreds of pastors. And those pastors, all their spiritual DNA goes back to Knox and Calvin. Um, but they formed what they themselves called the spiritual brotherhood. And it was a group of pastors. Uh, and in this case, Puritans in England. Now, the reason they were called Puritans um, I've already alluded to, I've talked about a little bit, just to remind you, um, Queen Elizabeth liked certain aspects of, you might say, the historic Catholic liturgy in worship. And now that she was the head of the church, uh, she'd had enough reformation. She liked the pomp and circumstance of the Anglican church as it stood and so she didn't want the church to continue reforming. And there were those preachers, these Anglican preachers, and by the way, the Westminster Assembly, 100% of them were ordained in the Anglican church. I mean, they were all Anglican ministers, and they were all Puritans, and they were all Calvinists at the Westminster Assembly in 1653, or 1643, rather. Um, but the the previous century, uh, right up until, you know, uh, Elizabeth died, the Puritans were allowed to preach as long as they didn't attack those who weren't like them. That is, the Anglican hierarchy, 
the bishops and the big cathedral churches and the ones that the royal party liked and enjoyed and 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 had these liturgies that still reflected Roman Catholic belief. Now the Puritan minister said we need to continue reforming and that's the, the term reformanda always reforming and that is and what they meant by that was they needed to become more and more like the New Testament church. They had to become more and more like the apostolic church. And so as there were things that they that they were practicing were discovered to were discovered to be not discovered in the Bible when they realized the Bible doesn't sanction this. The Bible only wants God wants to be worshipped the way he set it up in the Bible. Um, and it's called the regulative principle of worship. The Bible regulates how we worship God because that's what he, how he said he wanted to be worshipped. And so as they discovered things that they were doing that weren't biblical, they discarded them. And that's what Elizabeth didn't want discarded, things that she liked. You know, she, uh, preachers wearing the surplice was, was, a, was a particular preaching garb that the Roman Catholic priesthood had worn and it, and it had certain powers it had superstitions that were attached to it so Puritans came along and said our preaching garb needs to be much simpler and so they, they wore a black preaching robe now they, they still wore black preaching robes to separate themselves from everyone else because of their position as the pastor uh, of the church and, and that sort of thing but they got rid of the superstitious stuff that went with it well that the Anglican bishops they wore gaudy uniforms they wanted everybody to know that they were super pastors and that they had the authority of the crown behind them and so there was a great deal of pomp and circumstance involved in the Anglican church the Puritans were simple and th they didn't want that they didn't want to call attention uh, to themselves but rather to Christ and so and, and there's just a, a laundry list of things that the Anglican Church clung on to and still do today the, the confessional where Christians go and confess their sins to the priest in a, in a confessional um, kneeling at communion um, in the front of the church um, there were there were all sorts of things from the clothes they wore to the liturgy to the words that they repeated out of a prayer book uh, and those sorts of things and so as the church became more reformed as the, and as these pastors called it as the church was becoming more purified and that's why they were called Puritans because they wanted the church to continue becoming more purified that is more like the apostolic church so kneeling in itself isn't bad. It's just if you think you have to do it, right? Well, it was, it was actually part of the um, communion service where they would come and guess what we have here? Um, you know, uh, they would come and they would kneel uh, in front of the priest and then the priest would give them the body of Christ and it was all wrapped up in the mass um, and, and the, uh, their, their view of what communion was, which was also unbiblical in certain aspects. Um, well, I just meant because so it's not, wrong, it's not wrong for Christians to kneel in prayer. Well, good. That's so that's... My mother praying. No, uh, no, no, no. That's, all Christians uh, should do that. Uh, um, and and there's, there's nothing wrong about that. Uh, but in terms of uh, celebrating the, the Mass, uh, as the Catholic Church did, uh, kneeling in front of the priest and uh, submitting uh, to what they thought was the literal body and blood of Christ was all part of this uh, superstitious uh, practice that had developed over the centuries. And so they just began backing out of that and saying, there's nothing in the Bible about that. That is not how... That is not how um, the Lord's Supper is to be taken. The Bible's pretty clear. So that's just one example. But there, there are 
many, many different things. So they, be, they were called Puritans because they rejected some of the um, superstitions of the Catholic Church that were retained by the Anglican Church. Uh, but Puritanism was much more than that. It was much more than what they didn't do. Uh, it was really centered on what they did do. And that was uh, conformed to uh, a, a regulating principle of scripture regarding the worship of God, at the center of which was the exposition of the word of God. You might have answered my question, but what was the central thing that made them a Puritan? Because it wasn't a denominational thing. No. They were. Um, you, do you see what I'm asking? Like what, what, made, what was that core thing? Like if you're a Baptist, you have one thing in common, is you don't baptize infants, you know, of baptism. That's it. Right. That's the one you can be cessationist, you can be all over the map. What made them a Puritan? Like where you would be one category? Uh, I don't I don't know that you could say that there was one specific thing um, because there were um, Episcopalians, there were Anglicans who who preached the word of God as the central aspect of worship. Men like Bishop Usher, who was the actually uh, uh, the Archbishop of Ireland, he was, he was a Puritan in the way he preached and conducted worship, etc. But he was, a, he, at the same time, he was a high church Anglican, and he didn't believe that the Westminster Assembly was legal, and he was invited to attend. Would, would he have called himself a Puritan, or is that no. you know, we put on him since we saw we him? We put, yeah, okay. yeah, he, uh, that's something we put on him. He attended the Westminster Assembly. He was invited to be a, to be a member of the Assembly, and he refused, but he attended as an observer. And he rejected um, because much of what they did because... It, it was outside of the high church Anglican liturgy that he was wedded to. So when they talked about getting rid of bishops, he's, he's, an arch, he's the Archbishop of Ireland, and he holds Puritan views on a number of things, but one of them is not getting rid of bishops. He sees Anglican um, form of church government as, as biblical. Bill, when did, who, who, who labeled the Puritans the Puritans? Who, who gave them that label? Oh, uh, they're, they're opponents, they're enemies. It, it was a, a term of derision initially. Uh, King James called them, yeah, um, Elizabeth called them Puritans. King James called them Puritans, and they said it in a very negative, in a very negative fashion. Um, and you know, King James even called together a uh, a gathering. Uh, what was that called? Um, it was in 1604. Um, I can't remember what it was called, it, but it was an assembly called by the king, and there were a handful of Puritans that were invited to attend to argue their position and. The reality was, is all the bishops were there, and they they did nothing but ridicule. Uh, the Puritan pastors tried to explain what they believed and why they worshipped the way they did, and why they rejected certain aspects of Anglicanism, Anglican worship. And they were they were laughed at. They were mocked by the king. The uh, the bishops called them names, uh, and of course the, the, the main name that they called them were Puritans. Yeah, but I think uh, that's a nice name. They could have come up with an uglier name. Like yes, they could. Yes, they, they, yes, they could have. Uh, yeah, well, they did, <laughs> actually. Well, the people that called them that were not true believers, and so they don't care about really being pure. No, you know, they, no. They look at pure as something negative. They reject they, the definition of pure yeah. uh, right away, I mean, as a presupposition. So. We like the term Puritan. That's weird. Yeah, we do. We do. Yes, we well, identify one with them. I had real quick. Yeah. In America, with the American Puritans, it was really like the whole, they were all called Puritans. Like, you know, the families and everything, not just the ministers. Right. In England, right. was it more so just the ministers were called Puritans? 
Um, or was it like encompassing of the congregations and the people? And initially, initially it was just the preachers. Yeah. Initially, it was the pre- preachers were called because they they were in charge of the worship. Right. And um, just by the time they got to America, they were already all Puritans. Yeah. In, Right. right. They were Puritan congregations. Right. Right. They came to America as congregations. Yeah. They they up and they uprooted themselves and oh, it was called the Hampton the Hampton Court Conference, 1604. That was one I was trying to think of, um, where they were uh, were assembled to to discuss the, what was called the Act of Uniformity. Uh, King James was trying to make everybody uh, knuckle under to his supremacy and and the Anglican uh, liturgies. It's interesting Paul. that the names that have stuck with the more narrow believers throughout history have come as words to put them down. Yeah, Christian was a word covenanter, uh, Huguenot, Right, those were all negative. They all, ne- all have negative concepts. Yeah, and it, it also came from, those came from churchmen. Uh-huh. Those were not invented by pagans or, you know, enemies of the church. They were, those were terms that were used within the communion itself to denigrate uh, those who didn't go along with the majority uh, at the time. So... Yes, yeah, piety has fallen on uh, hard times, it has. It has. Now, pietistic, pietistic, uh, there is a use for that term um, that is legitimate. But people that are described as pious, it's usually mentioned in a negative sense, like you like you said. Um, although there is, there are legitimate uses of forms of that that uh, are more theologically accurate. What is the difference? Um, you don't have to go on long. Uh, if you don't want to between the separatists and the Puritans. Okay. In my mind, I feel like I know what it might be, but I have. That is a great question. I'm going to jump ahead because <laughs> I can always jump back. I'm going to answer your question um, because it comes into play in the Westminster Assembly so strongly. Um, there were four different kinds of um, members of the Westminster Assembly. There were four different, I mean, we'd call them schools of thought, perhaps, or theological preference groups. It was called by Parliament, and it was by invitation. And Parliament was a somewhat divided body theologically also. And so, um, when they called together, there, there were 20 members of the House of Commons, and see how many, 10 from the House of Lords that were members of the Westminster Assembly, and 121 divines, that's pastors. Um, so 20 commons, 10 lords, 121 pastors, all of them selected by Parliament. So you have, within Parliament, you've got all kinds of different beliefs and and such. And what they have in common is they're all Calvinists and they're at war with the king. I mean, on the political level, the king has raised his standards at Nottingham, has called all loyal royal subjects to his banners, and he's going to war against Parliament. And so Parliament, what they have in common is that they're, they're at war with the king, but theologically they're in different places, but they want the best men to assemble and and come to terms on what uh, 
England should be theologically. Uh, re keeping in mind that every single country in Europe has a national church. The pastors are paid by the government and they officially all belong to Lutheran, Reformed, Roman Catholic, and in the case of England, you've got Anglican, period. Now in Scotland, you've got Presbyterian, period. Well now, the Anglicans and the Presbyterians, they're getting together because Parliament says we need a, we need a confession of faith that we can all agree on that's thoroughly biblical. And so they've called this assembly. And there are four major groups. There are many Episcopalians who stayed home that were invited to come, and they didn't come because this is illegitimate. The king didn't call this assembly. We're not going to attend. Um, so you've got Bishop Usher as an example, and he comes. But he's not, he is very uneasy about being there um, because he's a king's man. But he's also a Puritan in his, theologically speaking, but he's high church Anglican. So he is there. Well, I, he's more low church Anglican. But he's there representing Anglicanism. Um, there aren't many, there's, there's only a few, and, but he's the best known one. And then there are the Presbyterians, and they are probably at this point the majority, or close to the majority. And by Presbyterian, small p, we mean that Anglican pastors and members of Parliament that hold to some form, or want to hold to some form, of Presbyterian church government. In other words, no bishops, individual churches, connected by general assemblies and elders that are elected as the spiritual oversight of the church, Presbyterian church government as we have been studying it. And that's probably the majority of the Westminster Assembly initially, and it, but it's a, small, it's a slight majority if, if it is the majority. And then there are the independents. The independents, although they are ordained Anglican clergymen like everybody else there that are clergy, they don't believe that the Anglican church can be reformed. They don't think that it can conform to a biblical pattern. Either that or they believe that it's unbiblical and churches need to be independent of the crown altogether. That they need to be separated. They need to separate from the Anglican church. And just, England should allow for independency. Now, there's no other country in the world that allows that except for Holland, except for the Netherlands. But there's no other, and they still have a state church, but they allow independency in other, they allow anything in the Netherlands like they do today, unless you're reformed. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so they're the independents. And they're represented by some of the greatest preachers in the English languages have ever lived. Um, and some of those names, Goodwin, Burroughs, Bridge, Simpson, um, and, a, and a, a number of others. I mean, these are great preachers and their books their, their books, their uh, sermons are still reprinted and still read, but they were independents. And the debate's going to end up being between Presbyterians and independents, for the most part. Um, so the independents are people that believe that the church should, should break from the Anglican church altogether. And some of the Presbyterians are, are going that way too. And then there are the Erastians, um, Coleman, Lightfoot, Selden, also great preachers and um, intellectually powerful men who are going to argue 
that the king is the head of the church and that he should uh, he should have through his bishops should have control over the church now these men are Puritans and they're reformed but they they don't want to detach themselves they're, they're not they're anti-independent and they're anti-presbyterian but but they're they're powerful reformed intellects that have a completely different and they're called they're called Erastians so you have the royal party that you might rec representative usher and then the Presbyterians a small majority independents a growing group and I want to say more about the independents in a, in a second here I, we only have a couple minutes left but, um, but that's okay uh, and then you have the Erastians who are kind of on the king's side but they want him to be reformed and they want the church to be reformed so those are, those are kind of like the four different parties that are going to debate uh, and they're going to debate every single doctrine I mean they're going to say today we're going to discuss what the Bible teaches concerning church government now there's the thing that they couldn't agree on church government it's the thing they couldn't agree on um, and there were others that they disagreed on but eventually they came to a consensus through biblical through biblical debate and argumentation and these men are brilliant uh, and you just read their sermons and their their Bible commentaries and stuff it's just it's a unique group of people this is like the founders of the United States you know a certain unique group of men came together in history providentially that had a particular kind of education and relationships that came together historically in a way that created the American Republic well these guys are the same thing the Westminster Assembly is the same kind of group of people that at a unique point in history they came together providentially now the other the other issue or the other this is a fly in the ointment a war going on and the commander of the parliamentary forces Lord Fairfax has a couple of generals who allow anybody that, that meets their their military criteria and will obey orders to be members of their ranks and the chiefest among them is Oliver Cromwell who's a member of Parliament uh, who's reformed doesn't like Presbyterians uh, he's an independent and his army called the new model army is full of independence but it's the whole gamut of religious kooks that have arisen because of the break with Roman Catholicism and this is one of the big arguments the Catholics make against Protestantism is what happened in England as a result during the Civil War and these are just these are well, I don't have time to go I'll talk about them next week but th these are their names these are cults these are various cults and they exist within the army and they have very particular and peculiar beliefs theological beliefs which are independent of usually everybody else <laughs> so they're they're small groups of men who are influential and who are good soldiers and are led by ministers who have gone way off the reformed reservation so you've got levelers these, these are their names the levelers you can guess what they want no aristocrats these are the communists the levelers are communists okay there's the diggers and the diggers are worse than the levelers and then there's the Quakers who actually happen to be pacifists and so they're not actually in the army for the most part they're outside the army causing trouble and then there's the fifth monarchy men and the seekers and these are different seekers than the ones we hear about today and one of my favorites the ranters the charismatics are, the charismatics are everywhere yeah uh, 
And then to top it off, there are the Muggletonians <laughs> and the Baptists. Although they're actually in a slightly different category than all the ones I just mentioned because they're not crazy. <laughs> but the other ones that I mentioned, most of them, we, we look at them and say, who thought that up? I mean, you know, who invented those guys? These, these folks are components of the army. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. They're, they they're components of the culture. And they've gravitated to the army because they see the, dis the overthrow of the king as their opportunity to get their beliefs accepted and be allowed to create their own churches based on these doctrines that they hold. And some of them are really good soldiers and some of them become officers in the army. And they're all independents. And eventually that army is going to behead the king and take over. And Oliver Cromwell is going to have to execute some of these guys. They're in his army, but they're way beyond him. There are certain rules that he has, and they're not going to obey those either. So some of these groups are revolutionaries, and they want, they want to be heard, and they want the same rights as everybody else, uh, and, you know, the communists just aren't really compatible with what's going on in England at that time, uh, so among others. Like now, Anabaptists in England, it is the radical reform. You know, yes, the, this is the, the radical this is, these are the radicals, <laughs> and they're a factor. They're not really a factor in the Westminster Assembly, but they're a factor in the army. And the army's going to the army's going to play a, a big role in in what's going to happen in the government uh, coming up. Well, in the meantime, the Westminster Assembly, while it doesn't have Muggletonians uh, or Baptists in their group, they have a, a fine body of independents who are great preachers. And all these other people claim to be just like them, and they're not. And so there's, there's ferment that's going to have to be sorted out. <laughs> uh, but the assembly, the assembly is not composed of these crazy things, but the army is. And uh, that's going to be a, just an interesting uh, sidelight to the, what's taking place as far as the church is concerned. Because the Reformation has unleashed, you know, Reformation has dislocated people from Mother Church and the Pope. So these are all Protestants, and they're going in a hundred different directions, which is what the Catholic Church said is going to happen if you separate from Mother Church. And uh, more about that at a later date, like <laughs> next Sunday. Okay. Uh, okay, I'm sure that probably bothered you the whole hour. <laughs> and I appreciate that because I would never notice it until I fell. So. Church of God.